all kids lie. Even your beloved little Dylan, he lies, okay? But they lie in a very specific way. So you come down for breakfast, you open the cabinet, and like half the Oreos are gone. And you say, Dylan, did you eat an Oreo? And he's like, oh, no. You ate an Oreo, didn't you? Yeah, just one. Dylan, there are 12 Oreos going, well, maybe two. You get it. He's lying, he knows he's lying, he's ashamed of what he did, he's trying to hide it, you caught him, he's doubly ashamed you caught him, and so he's trying to hedge a little bit. Well, it's not as bad as you think. I'm not that bad a person, I only ate two, I didn't eat 12. And instead of, you know, smacking him and saying, you lie, you, you get it, right? If Dylan worked in the Biden administration, he would stare right in your eyes and smile and say, I didn't eat any Oreos. You did. You ate the Oreos. You ate the Oreos. And he would be so calm and unperturbed and so certain of your guilt that in your mind you would think, shit, did I eat the Oreos? Maybe I did, maybe I sleptwalked. Because we're not used to dealing with people who can lie without guilt. Hello, and welcome to the Baseload Podcast. My name is Ben Beatty, and I did not eat the Oreos. Tucker Carlson there channeling Jordan Peterson in a recent speech in Las Vegas, and we'll hear a bit more of that later. I pulled that part out because I believe this is exactly what's happening in many political arenas, and specifically in Australia, where we get told day in and day out that renewables are the cheapest form of energy. The more renewables you have in the system, uh, the more downward pressure that puts on bills because renewable energy is the cheapest form of energy. What is gaslighting? Chris Bowen on ABC Radio gets the goat later on for good reason, as he's just announced a massive expansion of taxpayer support for large-scale wind and solar. There's been an immediate sense of jubilation from the uh, renewables lobby. Here's John Grimes from the Smart Energy Council, and if you watch the video on their social media, he's accurately portraying the Cheshire Cat. Well, stunning news from the federal government overnight. They're going to invest in what they're calling a supercharged capacity investment scheme. 32 gigawatts of new large-scale renewables to be built right across Australia. The government is also going to engage the states and territories to make sure they streamline and speed up their planning approval processes. This is an absolutely fantastic development. It's about confidence for industry, the confidence to invest and build, confidence for regional communities, confidence for all Australians that they will have access to the world's cheapest and cleanest power. A stunning development overnight. Massive congratulations to the federal government. Uh, the biggest single investment in large-scale renewables in Australia's history. A red-letter day for our industry. We'll keep you posted as we learn more. Fantastic news to wake up to today. Yuck. The thought of an unproductive industry already bloated by decades of subsidies, targets and incentives. The, an industry that would not exist at anywhere near the scale it enjoys today without those, you know, that support, is cheering on the rampant destruction of our critical electrical systems. If that sounds like hyperbole, I'll lay it out for you shortly. First, here's Mr. Bowen. He's definitely eating the Oreos. Every country in the world, uh, really, is on the same journey as us, moving to a very high proportion of renewables. The biggest threat to reliability, energy reliability, in Australia today is actually an ageing coal-fired power station which has an unexpected outage. But these renewable energy, tra energy transformation agreements will really put the nation on an orderly path uh, to a more reliable, more secure and more renewable energy future. I mean, the world's already warmed, you know, uh, 1.1 uh, according to some studies. 
Um, but every increment over 1.5 makes a huge difference, particularly for Australia, probably the developed country most exposed to the impacts of climate change. Okay, to set the scene for my analysis, here is a piece written by Saul Kavonik on his Twitter page. And I quote, and I'll, I'll read it out in full. This capacity investment scheme announcement is a big deal, a major market change. Labor is now well down the road towards a predominantly government-controlled and funded energy system. Government is resorting to taxpayer money to bail it out of the energy market mess it has created. This effectively dismantles the Energy Security Board, replacing it with an unaccountable, whatever Bowen feels like, decision-making process. Rolling Capacity investment scheme actions will see taxpayers guaranteeing minimum revenue to projects that will aid project finance. It might help, but not attain the 82% renewable energy target, as transmission is still the main hurdle in New South Wales, which is the biggest market. But there will be unintended consequences for investment. It will deter private investment, which will now wait for subsidies instead of going ahead. It will hinder the development of private funding off-taker structure for batteries and deter investment from all capacity investors who made investments based on no subsidies and will now face having their returns diluted by this artificial competition. In turn, the government will feel pressured to subsidise more to make up for drying up private investment, creating a vicious cycle of ever-increasing government intervention and taxpayer subsidies. It's an admission that the government is very worried about blackouts and is trying to fix it, but without using the best solution, which is gas, because they also need to pander to the Greens. So they are resorting to more expensive and less effective solutions at taxpayers' expense. The details are not disclosed, and the reason for not disclosing the details are poor. There is every reason to believe taxpayers are on the hook for an expensive price. It's questionable if our energy market will survive in any meaningful way after this government is done with all of its interventions. End. Thank you, Saul. I have to uh, <laughs> I have to concur with a lot of that. Kavonik's take is, in my opinion, accurate in the following ways. First, transmission is the biggest hurdle in New South Wales, which is the biggest load. Not much has been said about how Bowen will overcome the transmission hurdles, but there's this snippet from his ABC television interview. You've still got a lot of hurdles, though, haven't you, including having enough transmission lines in the grid as we're heading into what is going to be a very difficult summer. Is the pressure now on the states and territories to speed up approvals, to get rid of the bottlenecks, to have these negotiations with landholders and communities? I'd see it in a couple of parts, Lisa. And there's transmission, which we all have to work together on, federal, state, the private sector, local governments... We need to work with communities better than has happened in the past. Uh, we want to bring communities with us more meaningfully than has happened in the past and ensure there's community benefit. And we all have to do that, all levels of government. Uh, and we are working on that through a review at the moment. So you have to wonder what Mr Bowen means by review. Does he mean more subsidies? Does he mean improving the capability of governments to acquire land for transmission lines? Is this, is this land resumption laws? You talk to a few people here and there and they say, yes, that's largely what it means. Uh, I don't have any greater insights than that, but I'll tell you what, if I was a, uh, an obstinate landowner in the way of a transmission line, I think I'd be, uh, I'd be preparing for something like that. The second of Kavonik's insights is that with a massive amount of new wind and solar supposed to enter the market under this capacity investment scheme, all other investments under existing schemes, such as the Federal Renewable Energy Target, 
state subsidy schemes and reverse auctions will all see reduced output. The reason is curtailment, which occurs because all the wind generation is on at the same time and all the solar is on at the same time. In fact, any generation online during the day also has to compete with rooftop solar, of which 99% cannot be curtailed. This means that even with these wind and solar projects receiving a largely fixed price contract, regardless of the market price, they still need to generate electricity to earn revenue. And if the wind and solar fleet are increasingly curtailed by the market operator because of oversupply, the revenue dries up. This is exactly what's happening to the coal-fired generators. So will new generators be paid to not generate like they are in the UK? Will we see the existing renewable energy target subsidised wind and solar fleet as their revenue dries up, cut over to the new scheme to guarantee their income? But as we're seeing a big increase in renewable applications and the systems, some of the systems are groaning uh, as those renewable applications go up, it's perfectly appropriate for all governments to work together to try and get that happening faster. Two days before the announcement, Matthew Warren wrote this in the AFR. The biggest hurdle to building a massed renewable engine to power our economy is the growing fleet of renewables already installed because they all run at the same time. These headwinds are already materialising relatively early into the renewables adventure. Almost every day, 3.4 million rooftops generate more than 10,000 megawatts at their midday peak. This creates chronic oversupply, sending wholesale electricity prices negative. This means the value of any additional electricity from solar panels or other sources is beyond worthless to the grid. Despite this, the installation of rooftop solar systems continues to accelerate. It's immune to such price signals, it's demand-driven by consumers avoiding rising retail electricity prices and a competitive low-cost installation industry. To manage this growing daily oversupply, every other type of generator that can is curtailed, turned off or dialed back. Coal generators are dialed down as low as possible but still on to supply the evening peaks as the sun sets. I mean, uh, that's, that's the end of the quote there. The, uh, this is basic stuff. There's no demand and supply anymore in the national electricity market. It's done, it's done and dusted. The new generation is forced in to meet targets that have nothing to do with, you know, meeting, keeping electricity systems stable or even, even the investment environment workable. Matthew Warren continues. The biggest hit is on the utility scale wind and solar farms who are having their generation increasingly curtailed during the daytime. They earn less and less revenue from the same capital outlay. This pushes up the cost of the electricity they produce and makes new projects less and less profitable. In other words, small-scale renewables are cannibalising the market for large-scale renewables. American commentator Alex Epstein puts it rather bluntly. Well, what's going on, it's this idea behind this transition, just people made up that they wanted to rapidly eliminate fossil fuels, be quote unquote net zero by 2050. Mm -hmm. They wanted that because they think it's the most evil thing in the world if we have any impact on climate and we should sacrifice everything to that god of an unimpacted climate, which is somehow magical, the climate we inherited in 1850. And so we're just going to destroy everything. And it's just this primitive religion that sacrificed everything sacrificing everything again to this idea of let's not impact the climate like who cares if we warm the climate a degree or two if we're all prosperous we're still in a world where more people die of cold than from heat so it's it's really a primitive anti-human religion that's driving him and again even the crisis in the middle east can't get him to approve some oil drilling since the announcement on the capacity investment scheme i've spoken to several people whose opinion i respect and all of them say this is a terrible idea there's no consideration for the market or what's left of it anyway. There's no consideration for the consumers. And as regular listeners will know, I offer a simple rebuttal to the renewables are cheaper argument. 
the basis of that is that electricity bills are made up of several components, not just the wholesale cost of generation. Wind and solar's only possible place to lower costs is in the wholesale component. And that window of opportunity is only when the weather is favourable. Every other cost component goes up. So doubling the grid and more than doubling the capacity of wind and solar must massively increase costs. This seems so obvious to me that I find myself checking my sanity when somebody challenges it. It's exactly like Tucker Carlson's analogy. Am I wrong? Is the evidence I can see with my own eyes incorrect? Did I actually eat the Oreos? Do we have enough renewable energy in the grid to avoid big power prices? Good morning, Shervo. Uh, yes, we do is the short answer. There's that gaslighting again. So what's, what's the real reason, do we think, that we're going down this path? Does our energy minister offer any insights into why? We are going to massively increase our renewable share, as we absolutely have to, if we are going to play our role in arresting climate change. So that seems pretty clear to me. That's got nothing to do with Australians' energy security. It's got nothing to do with the reliability. It's got nothing to do with cost. It's all about emissions reduction. Sometime before the 2022 election, Mr Bowen was defending his policies based on the, the so-called cost reductions possible. Thanks to Will Shackle for posting this memorable moment. Josh Frydenberg said this morning, our Labor never models or cost their policies. <laughs> I mean, au contraire. I mean, he said that before he saw the document. And Scott Morrison said this policy will put electricity, pr electricity prices up before he must have been aware of modelling which shows it puts electricity prices down. <laughs> We're not talking about that modelling anymore, are we, Chris? Speaking of Will Shackle, the young Australian nuclear advocate who pops up in uh, the most interesting places, he will be in Dubai at the United Arab Emirates COP28 meeting, as will Mr Bowen. So William will be spruiking the benefits of nuclear, and I think most of the countries will be doing a similar thing where they're talking about tripling the rollout or the capacity of nuclear power around the world. What's, what's Mr Bowen going to be doing while he's over there? I'm leading the Australian delegation to COP um, where we'll be arguing for a strengthening of the mitigation language. We'll be arguing for good progress. Last COP we had to just argue strongly with like-minded countries to hold the line to keep what was in Glasgow. Uh, we want to do better than that this time. We'll see how we go. Uh, you know, it's a contested and difficult geopolitical environment at the moment, uh, but we'll be working very hard, both with the COP president and with uh, countries who approach these matters similarly to us, uh, to say, enough flowery speeches, uh, let's get on with real progress in international cooperation to deal with climate change. Never take investment advice from someone who's never had an actual job. Don't buy real estate from a homeless person, etc., etc. Don't uh, hire a fat person as your trainer. Rafe Champion has been writing about the Australian energy debacle for years now and is exasperated at the lamentable quality of press coverage on energy issues. He says there is a dearth of searching questions directed at politicians and other renewable energy enthusiasts. I concur. Rafe and his colleagues and friends have decided that a prestigious award, analogous to the Brownlow and Rothmans medals, is required to celebrate leading exponents of misinformation in the energy sector's press coverage. Journalists and commentators will compete for Packham Williams points based on their most recent performance. The award will immortalise the contributions of Colin Packham and Perry Williams, who both work at The Australian, where the management, or at least the editorial policy, apparently favours warming, alarmism and salvation by wind and solar power. 
the launch of Chris Bowen's grand plan to get the transition back on track has produced an outburst of excitement amongst many commentators apparently eager to rack up some Packham Williams points. That's all the information I have for now, but stay tuned for more on this exciting topic. The government has conceded Australia is not on track to meet its 82% renewable target. It will now massively expand a taxpayer-funded scheme to subsidise and to underwrite new renewable energy projects. It's an admission that Australia is not currently on track to reach its 2030 target in the power grid. To explain what it actually means for you, Chris Bowen is the Minister for Climate Change and Energy and he joins us now. Welcome. I must interject here to uh, announce that the GOAT is on high alert and may bring in a surprise guest. Good to be back with you, PK. Good morning. When did you realise you were not going to meet this target? Well, PK, this is a confirmation of what I've been saying for some time, including on your show on several occasions, that we were doing well but not well enough. Um, We've been making that clear and we're in a global race for capital and critical supply chain elements. And we need to make Australia as welcoming and as stable a policy environment as possible for this most important economic transformation. And that's exactly what we're doing. And in many senses, PK, this is mainly about reliability. You ate the Oreos. You ate the Oreos. We know that reliability is not the real answer. What a Chris Bowen say on Q&A earlier this year. We are going to massively increase our renewable share, as we absolutely have to, if we are going to play our role in arresting climate change. The interview continues. As you know, we've had four gigawatts of dispatchable power leave our grid over the last decade and only one gigawatt come on. Yesterday, Penny Sharp, the New South Wales Minister, and I announced a full gigawatt of dispatchable power. That's more than the previous government delivered in their entire nine years. Okay, so I have to pull him up there. The dispatchable capacity that Chris Bowen is talking about is batteries. Every battery is subsidised in some way and has a very little impact on the market. Um, and that's the same system which we're expanding today uh, to reduce emissions. The primary objective. Uh, and, of course, energy and electricity is about a third of our emissions, so that's very important, but also get more investment on before coal-fired power leaves, not after, which has been the way it's been done up until now, and get it on as coal-fired power, frankly, PK, is becoming increasingly unreliable as the coal-fired power stations are ageing, and that's the biggest threat to reliability in our grid. You ate the Oreos. So guess what happens under the burden of the deliberate poisoning of the market against them, the omnipresent carbon taxes, implied and direct, and activist politicians saying they will shut these coal-fired power stations down as soon as humanly possible. You stop maintaining these assets, and that's a problem. When one half of the supposed saviour technology shuts down in the evenings, and the other half sporadically injects electricity at the whims of the weather. Okay, so under this scheme, the Commonwealth, so the federal government, will underwrite new projects. That removes risk for investors. So can you level with the Australian public and tell us how much it will cost? Well, it's an auction, PK, now in your... When you're putting a house on the market, you don't issue a press release saying this is what you expect to get. So I wonder what happens if the government's reserve price is not met. I wonder if they do have a reserve price at all. A similar situation happened recently in the UK. Plans to treble capacity by 2030 may be stalling, with a government auction for new wind farms expected to flop. Britain's biggest renewable generator told Sky News the price has been set too low for the sums to add up. Unfortunately, because of 
movement in interest rates, cost of equity, and also particularly supply chain, um, you've suddenly seen those cap prices um, look a little tight, and therefore it's made it difficult for some companies to decide they want to bid. And indeed, for the project we had, it's a little bit smaller than some uh, in deeper waters and further north in the UK, and therefore we just wouldn't have been able to even get a bid in at that cap price. And when you're bidding, you don't, you know, write to the to the uh, to the seller saying this is what we're going to bid. No, but it's you an know the range, don't you? You always know the range. Well, uh, what we're not going to do is give a hint to bidders as to where they should be bidding. I want the best possible deal for taxpayers. Just as yesterday's announcement was, and it was a very good deal for taxpayers, um, we need to keep bidders with their pencil sharp. We want them competing against everyone else and not knowing uh, what the Commonwealth expects. Now, in my opinion, a reasonable long-term average wholesale price for electricity is $70 a megawatt hour. I recall that was an Angus Taylor goal back in 2021 when he was the energy minister. When you look at the annual average wholesale prices on the regulator's wholesale, wholesale statistics site, which shows the prices back to 1998, there were only two periods prior to 2016 that exceeded $70, and both were in South Australia. Prices again dropped below $60 in 2020-21 because there was reduced demand for gas during COVID lockdowns, and then we hit the current era. Um, the way this auction works is that we will ask bidders, renewable energy investors, to tell us what's their minimum uh, return, what's their minimum price and what's the maximum price they expect and when will they share profits uh, with the Commonwealth or the taxpayer and we expect very strong and good bids. Also, importantly, what we're announcing today, PK, is that we are entering into renewable energy transformation agreements with the states, negotiations to come, but of course we've already consulted with the states about this because there's a lot of goodwill um, between the Commonwealth and the states. You know, we're all working well together, but we need this transition more orderly. We need all our policies pointing in exactly the same direction. We need to be working with states to reform planning systems. <laughs> Uh, we need to be working with states to ensure reliability reserves underpinning okay. this transformation, and that's exactly what these reforms will deliver. You eat the Oreos. That's right. Shutting down all the coal-fired power stations and replacing them with three times as much wind and solar improves reliability. So, again, just for you know, a regular person who's listening to understand, for an Australian... <laughs> I think I think even Patricia Carvelis has been thrown by Bowen's gaslighting there. Something about regular people and Australians? I don't know. Is this about ensuring that the power supply stays on, that the lights stay on? Did you feel like you needed to dramatically expand this to ensure that happens? In short, yes, um, because um, coal-fired power will lead the grid. We all know that, and only, and only really the National Party pretends otherwise. Well... You know, since Hazelwood and Northern Power Station, every power station that was meant to shut off on time has been delayed. Liddell gave five years' notice and had to uh, push it out a little bit. Uh, you've got Loyang A, I think, in Victoria. Obviously, your lawn. And now you've got Araring, all receiving a taxpayer money to stay open. They can build no new coal. That they can build new coal-fired power stations, and some liberals. Um, so everybody sensible knows that that's not going to happen. And also, you know, coal-fired power stations. The workers are doing a great job keeping them operating and running, but they're getting older, and uh, they are increasingly out. Um, both in expected outages, which is manageable because AEMO knows that's coming and can build it into their plans, but unexpected outages at very short notice, and we're dealing with one of those at the moment. Well, that's funny because I'm looking at a visualisation of the national electricity market's total wind output right now. 
and on some days it's down below 1,000 megawatts for over 11,000 megawatts capacity. Will PK ask about that, I wonder? Um, and uh, if that happens in a, an environment where we're dealing with a heatwave, that's going to that's going to really provide pressure on the grid. So what we need to do is bring forward new investment. Now we've got a massive pipeline. This is why I, I, I choose to you know see the upside. We've got a massive pipeline of renewable energy investment in Australia. Uh, no, investment has dropped off a cliff, and interestingly, even rooftop solar uh, installations. If you look at the APVI.org.au website. And you can see monthly accumulated installations and almost every single capacity size is slowing down. In fact, I'd argue that if there was a massive pipeline of investment ready to go, why would you need this ridiculous capacity investment scheme to guarantee revenues? But we want it moving to finance, to final investment decision more quickly and we want it making its way through the planning systems more quickly. And to do that, we need what? More taxpayer subsidies. And really, what we're announcing today, we'll see that happen. And what happens to bills? Oh! Oh, no, she didn't! <laughs> I don't know where I get these ideas. Uh, will this investment well, no, have no. an impact on how much we pay for our power? Certainly no negative impact, PK. Oh! the Commonwealth is underwriting it. Um, so that's that's the case. But it is the case, though, that over time, um, the more renewables you have in the system, uh, the more downward pressure that puts on bills because renewable energy is the cheapest form of energy. <laughs> Maybe relying on family guy a bit too much there. But, uh, yeah, you get the point. How does uh, how is this all meant to work then, Mr. Bowen? We're seeing wholesale prices massively below where they were last year. That's <laughs> that's in no small part due to the very high solar penetration. You ate the Oreos. We're experiencing at the moment, and the and the more renewables set the wholesale price, the lower prices will be. I know. Price setters. Wind and solar very rarely set the price because they mostly bid their entire capacity at the floor price to ensure they are fully dispatched by AMO's automatic set point algorithm, which is based on the weather. To be the price setter, you have to be the last unit dispatched and therefore must have bid some capacity at a higher price than everybody else already dispatched. People don't pay wholesale prices, but they do flow through to retail prices after a period of time. And like I've discussed already many times before, the wholesale price is not the only cost on the retail bill. It's one of the key inputs to retail prices. What are the other key inputs, Mr Bowen, will you say? You know, the only people who pretend that renewable energy isn't the cheapest form of energy are our political opponents. An interesting report hit social media uh, very recently from the Bank of America. And I quote, Solar and wind look more expensive than almost any alternative on an unsubsidized basis when accounting for those external factors. This is especially true when accounting for the full system costs that include balancing and supply obligations. Nuclear appears to be the cheapest scalable clean energy source by far. Australians who've got solar panels on their roof know it. Everyone knows that rooftop solar panels are subsidized and even the market operator and the regulator, etc., are coming to the realisation that the rampant growth of rooftop solar is damaging the physics of the grid, making it unstable. And anybody sensible looking at the energy market knows it as well. The basic requirement of like seeking the truth is admitting when you don't find it, right? That's how you know an honest person when he admits he was wrong. And if you're dealing with people who never admit they're wrong, you're dealing with liars. 
So they've always been liars and there always will be. There's a lot of community opposition minister to wind farms and transmission lines in particular. How much has that slowed down approvals and how do you plan to get around that? I don't think it's slowed down approvals, but it's a very legitimate issue. Um, we, the, we've inherited a situation where community consultation hasn't been up to scratch, particularly on transmission lines, and we're moving to fix that. Inherited. This is transmission approvals have got next to nothing to do with the federal government. It's all states. Because these are big deals for communities with, do with you, impacts. Sorry to interrupt, but are you, you conceding that the process that you embarked on wasn't consultative enough? Yes. Yes, he is. No, no, I'm, I'm making the point that the consultation mechanism for new transmission lines in particular um, that's been in place for many, many years, I don't think was fit for purpose and we've reformed it. Chris Bowen demonstrating how to throw people under the bus right there, the state ministers in particular, and the energy bureaucracies as well. But there's also been criticism uh, of your government for not consulting affected communities that will have transmission lines in their communities. Well, we, we, we are going through that process, uh, PK. Now, transmission lines, for example, we, we are in the process of connecting Snowy 2.0 to the grid. There's no point building Snowy 2.0 unless you're going to plug it in. A true fact, finally. Previous government didn't really develop the plans to do that. I understand now, communities want to be consulted about how we do that. We've commissioned Andrew Dyer, the Energy Infrastructure Commissioner, to work with us in the states to improve the system. I guess if you're going to try and install another 10,000 kilometres plus of transmission lines that no one needs and no one wants, you're going to have to uh, change something. Transgrid has entered into agreements with more than 50% of the landholders. Hang on a second. It's November 2023. Snowy Hydro was first dreamt up in 2017, that's six years ago, and you've still only got 50% of the uh, right-of-way agreed with the landowners? Do we assume it's another six years to get the remaining 50%? I guess that'll line up with when Snowy 2 is finished. Um, which is a good thing, but there is more consultation to do. The states are doing a good job. All the eastern states have good packages of payments to landholders who have transmission lines on them, but it's not just about payments to landholders. <laughs> oh dear, the goat's getting the work out today. We've got a, we've got a little bit more to go as well. But uh, in addition to the cost of the infrastructure, you've got to make payments to landholders as well. Gets better. It's also about bringing communities with us on the broader impact. <laughs> okay, I think I've bludgeoned my points across enough, and frankly, I'm tired of Mr Bowen's voice, so I'm cutting it off there. The rest of the interview covers mostly Araring and the upcoming subsidy show, COP28. So I'm stopping there and putting the goat out to pasture until the next episode. Uh, I recommend anybody who wants to follow up on that interview on ABC Radio. To finish off this segment, uh, another truism from Tucker Carlson's speech. Telling the truth makes you stronger and you can feel it. It's like a superpower. Did I just do that? And other people can feel it too. They can smell it. Dogs can smell it. The person who tells the truth is strong. Other people respect the strong. And then it just increases from there. And the third thing that happens over time, if you tell the truth persistently, quietly, gently, politely, not spray painting it on buildings, just no, in a dignified way, no, I'm not doing that, sorry. And here's why. If you're interested, I'll tell you, but I'm a free man and I'm not doing that, ever. The third thing that happens if you adopt that posture is that they will back off. Because liars are weak. They are weak and afraid. Matt Canavan, welcome to the Baseload Podcast. 
Great to be finally with you, Ben. Long time listener, first time caller. Oh, thanks very much. Uh, Matt, I have you for a maximum of 40 minutes because I'm, I'm too cheap to upgrade the Zoom. And I have a, I have a host of questions <laughs> lined up. But yesterday's announcement by Chris Bowen about the new capacity investment scheme must be addressed. I understand you might not have had time to get into it in detail. What are your initial thoughts? Well, it's not surprising. Uh, I mean, the government's uh, renewable energy targets, total energy agenda really is uh, a big st- steaming pile of uh, rubbish at the moment. Uh, <laughs> it's way off track. Uh, so I had to do something. They were threatening to do something like the Inflation Reduction Act for months. Uh, I'm not sure if this is bigger or bolder than that. It's really hard to tell because uh, they haven't given us a lot of details. Uh they're effectively going to run a kind of reverse auction by the sound of it and try and get the lowest price um, with a with a with a put option of some kind. Uh, but of course they're going to exclude fossil fuels. And uh they're, they're seeking capacity, they're seeking um some kind of firmed capacity apparently in this this reverse auction. Um it does raise the question if if they keep saying that renewables are the cheapest, why do they need to exclude fossil fuels? Uh if 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 uh, renewables are the cheapest in any reverse auction seeking the lowest price uh, to guarantee supply, surely fossil fuels will come in last or behind renewables, uh, according to their views. But the fact they've got to exclude them from the scheme, to me, belies their total lies here that somehow a wind, solar, and this will need some kind of battery pumped hydro firming uh, is cheaper than, than existing with what we've got with a coal and gas-based system. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the phrase gaslighting comes to mind. And of course, gaslighting is when you say stuff and make people believe that they're, they're, they're not able to believe the evidence of their own eyes. And of course, the evidence of with large wind and solar penetrations is higher prices all across the board. And we're seeing that everywhere. It's everywhere. It's happening. Um, do you think, I mean, I don't want to get into too much into Chris Bowen's personality, but do you think he knows what he's doing to the electricity system or is he is he just cruising along in the blind belief and hoping it works it works out yeah look i don't know i can't read people's minds uh look i think a lot of people here have convinced themselves in the merit of their ways there's a whole industry obviously pushing this there's lots of detailed seemingly objective reports saying we can go to 80 90 even 100 percent renewables i mean the grant institute out there is pushing it often when you scratch the surface of these reports there's a huge amount of assumptions uh because uh, they're written by economists and that's tends to how they operate uh but but i suppose for people like chris bowen they don't possibly read behast past the executive summary and they're getting this advice from so-called experts and just following that and you know i i worry here that uh there's going to be a real reckoning uh uh, from the Australian people. I think we've already seen a kind of that post-COVID where a lot of what we were told ended up to be wrong or uh, if not blatant lies, uh, at least totally misconceived. Uh, and this is that on steroids. This is COVID on steroids, uh, uh, especially in this country where we're not even allowing nuclear in the equation, which is very different from most other countries. But uh, there's going to be a real reckoning here in this country. It could come as early as this summer. And it's just a total, very, very sad that a country as rich of resources and energy like we, us, uh, can't guarantee the lights to stay on this summer. Matt, that's a that's a perfect segue into my next topic, which is energy security. Uh, you're, in my opinion, you're very strong on energy security. You've you've got a good grasp of it. Um, the domestic situation: we've got liquid fuels, industrial supply of gas and electricity, then the domestic uh, electricity system as well. We've seen domestic retail price caps. We've seen federal domestic gas price caps, and Matt Keane's New South Wales coal reservation 
We have two oil refineries left operating. Uh, we export our fuel reserve to the US. Um, the potential for gas reservations in Queensland is increasing. LNG imports are inevitable. We see increasing uh, electricity curtailments on our biggest consumers, say, for example, our, um, our aluminium smelters. Uh, and we've got these ridiculous renewable targets across federal and state policies. Where where do you think this is all heading? Well, we've got a gaffer tape system, really. Uh, uh, the, that litany, that laundry list of policies uh, you've outlined there are all various knee-jerk responses to try and keep the lights on for one more summer, one more cold winter, uh, and it's eventually going to get to a breaking point is is what I firmly believe. Uh, that may or may not come this summer, depending on on whether or not we get the climatic conditions to put enough stress in the system, whether our coal-fired power stations don't break. Uh, I mean, the, the latest thing that, uh, the, 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 that also belies the absurdity of this capacity investment scheme is the AMOs out there right now asking for people to bid under their RERT scheme, the reliability scheme, mm. which has been triggered by the by the shortages of power this summer. And diesel generators can apply for that. And I know a number of businesses who have bought diesel gensets and are planning to pay back the gensets by getting a, a, an availability payment from AEMO that you'll all be paying for in your bills this summer. So we might keep the lights, lights on because we buy enough diesel gensets <laughs> for this summer. Uh, at very very expensive cost, uh, but eventually this is we're going to run out of of options here, and we're going to deindustrialize as a nation. We're going to have very high energy prices, and there will be a political response at some point. There'll be a backlash for sure. Yeah, I'm, I expect there'll be a tipping point uh, in the voting public at some at some level when the uh, when the reality becomes so clear that even the uh, our what I would call a biased media doesn't really get it whether they understand it or not, but they, I don't think they're reporting on it accurately. Um, and one of the one of the areas that they don't really talk about uh, is, I believe, and I like to say that we export energy security to our allies, uh, the coal, the gas, um, not much oil, unfortunately, but uh, if we had it, I'm sure we would export it. But we've got situations like the Ukraine, um, which had an impact on us because I would say that exposed some energy insecurity in our own systems. Uh, we've got the Middle East, which is popping up, which could well uh, have an impact on fuel, oil, and gas supplies. US LNG exports are ramping up, and Europe LNG import imports are ramping up. Uh, our, our allies rely on us, but is there is there a lack of trust in in the political sphere? Is, is Australia losing some of this trust that we've built up over oh, decades? No doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, I mean, you're right, uh, especially for the countries in our region, Japan, Korea, especially Taiwan. China's a little bit different, but we've also supplied a lot of energy to them. But they they did see Australia as a safe pair of hands. And the reason those countries came to Australia rather than, say, Indonesia, Malaysia or Russia uh, was because of the stability of our political system. And for especially for countries like Japan and Korea, without a lot of their own indigenous energy resources, they needed uh, a reliable partner like Australia. Uh, I was the resources minister for years, and and this relationship was already under stress then, uh, but it's gotten much much worse. In speaking to my colleagues in Japan, India, and other countries, I mean, India this year is in certain months has been importing more coal from Russia than Australia, uh, and you know it's and that includes coking coal, which is our biggest India is our biggest market for coking coal, uh, and there's no doubt India is after the Adani experience. Uh, is really has really written off Australia as a country to be relied on. We'll still export some shipments when they need coal on a temporary basis, but 
the the opportunity they're di- they're to, to secure long-term yeah. partnerships and investments is probably missed. And that's going to be a huge cost to our country. Now, this is separate from our own domestic energy issues. We're obviously a, a, a bigger export energy export of energy than we need to use ourselves. But you know, when you look at our budget, when you look at our, the way our country is run right now, half of our tax revenues, half of our company tax revenues, I should say, are coming from the mining sector. And about half of that is from gas and coal. Uh, right now, energy-related commodities. So we wipe this from the table. We're going to be a much poorer nation, and I don't think the uh, politicians have been have been uh, upfront with the Australian people about this. So, so telling all these fairy tales that we can replace it with rare earths, with critical minerals, uh, lithium is mm. a little bit more positive. But there's nothing really in those sectors that's going to replace the last year two hundred billion dollars of exports that we got from gas and coal. Yeah, uh, and I think the um, the rare earths and the critical minerals is is overhyped slightly because it it relies on a lot of modeling and assumptions of take up of say electric vehicles and it's just not the volume i mean the 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 global trade for rare earths lucky to be two billion dollars some years less than a billion depending on the price a global trade (laughs) as i said our exports of coal last year 130 billion uh they're very important commodities they're just not traded in the volumes that gas and coal are so uh, the calculations are just way off. Now, lithium, as I say, a little bit different. We exported $20 billion of lithium last year, but its price has crashed 80% in the past few months. Very volatile market. Not clear yet whether Australia will be the predominant supplier long term. Uh, and so we're just playing with fire here. We, we've been very, very lucky as a country, but I believe you make your own luck. And we did make our own luck in the past 30 years with good reforms, uh, attractive investment environments for business. We're struggling to achieve that now. Our, our mining sector now is getting $60 billion less a year in capital expenditure than it did at the height of the last mining boom, even though commodity prices over the past couple of years have been higher. That $60 billion is going to mean if you get less capital expenditure today, you'll be poorer in the future because your capital stock will be poorer in the future. So we're living off the legacy of what we invested in 10, 15 years ago right now, and things are great. It's going to be too late, though, if we wake up in 10 or 15 years' time saying, geez, we should have uh, attracted more investment. And if the activists get their wish and the uh, investment uh, dries up completely. It's it's all going to come crashing down. But then, on the other hand, if the companies do invest, then they'll actually pay less tax and they'll get attacked for that as well. Yeah, exactly. So uh, look, I, I, I unfortunately we're probably going to go through the school of hard knocks here, and part of that will be our own domestic energy situation, high prices, deindustrialization. Uh, but there's also this looming issue of a smaller mining sector looming over the next decade or two. And what does we replace that with? Uh, we won't be replaced with manufacturing because our energy competitiveness is shot. Uh, agri- agriculture is just not big enough. Uh, and then and then you've got, you, you're left with services industries, which uh, uh, really often rely on those primary industries, or in the case of government services, rely on the tax revenues that come from the resources sector, which no longer will be there. How do we fund the NDIS if we don't have a strong and functioning mining industry? The uh, Some people think the great green hope is going to be hydrogen, particularly um, oh, yeah, I forgot optimists about that. like uh, Alan Finkel. <laughs> and so, and I think, um, okay. but it's, yeah, the just the basics of hydrogen don't make any sense, let alone getting into the economics of it and whether there's a market. Yeah, like it's or... so far off. I mean, I, 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 I supported a lot of investment hydrogen when I was resources minister, and I've got no problems looking at these sort of things. But 
it's certainly not going to be a major export in the next decade. That's not on the cards. And 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 even the 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 countries that are most pinning their hopes on this, like Japan, admit that and know that. And the Japanese are very savvy in this these fields. They're planning on a 2040 to 2050 sort of take up of hydrogen. So it's a long way away. And and you know, it's therefore, but we're shutting all these industries down now. And and so, but I'm still, you know, the old physics joke is probably still true here that. You know, hydrogen is just 20 years away. It's just always been 20 years away. So, you know, it's going to arrive in 2040 or 2050. I don't know. I don't think we should be gambling our economic futures on it. Net zero. So I see in my brain, I see logical end consequences of the net zero policies basically becoming civil unrest. Now I look at examples in the UK, we've got the, uh, the ULES, the, uh, the, the low emission zones where the, uh, the people are fined for driving a car that's too old. Uh, and what they're doing is a going around and basically destroying the cameras that mm, that make the mm. fine. So I I see that as an early stage of of civil unrest. And at some point, um, you know, there's the they talk about conspiracy theories at the UN and the and the WEF and all the rest of it and and carbon taxes and individual carbon budgets and but it's in my mind it's not that far off. When is uh how bad does it get before lower income people who really wear the effects of these policies first? And they often vote green because they're they're renters or they're young. How far off are they realizing that net zero is a bad idea and not in their interest? Oh, I don't think it's far away. Uh, and uh, I, I think you can already see a political backlash brewing around the world. You saw the Dutch elections overnight, which, um, uh, where climate did play a role, has played a big role in Dutch politics in the last few years. Uh, obviously, the Argentinian elections have got a slightly different issues, but there's still that reaction. Uh, and as you say, the upheavals in in Britain, and we'll wait and see what happens in America next year. But I think there's there's often we we've sort of decided the climate wars are over here, or that's what the commentariat believe. But then there's this if you if you maintain that's the truth, you're almost willfully ignoring what's happening in other countries where there has been big backlashes, particularly in those countries that have gone further down this road than Australia. Uh, and then you've got the American situation, which obviously has a huge and influential role in in where we go. And you've still got uh, half of the American political establishment, the Republican Party, who have no truck with anything like net zero, anything like a green deal. Like there's just you, you don't find a Republican in favor mm-hmm. of this stuff. And that cuts across their their both their Trump and anti-Trump, if you like, or never Trump wings of the Republican Party. They're not in favor of this agenda. Now, eventually there'll be a Republican president elected, mm-hmm. whether it's next year or four five years time, who knows? But there'll be a Republican president. There'll be a Republican controlled Congress at some time in the future. And then what happens? They're going to get rid of it all. And what do we do then when we've signed up to this agenda? So I think this thing, this backlash is coming quicker than possibly we thought, partly accelerated by things like Ukraine, uh, the global energy crisis we're seeing. Uh, now, the, the backlash, I hope, will be, you, you mentioned civil unrest, but I, I still think there's a lot of hope that the backlash will be simply political and at the ballot box. Uh, it'll depend how flexible our political system is to respond to people's uh, desires and wants and you can see that in australia right now where the biggest issue for people is balancing their budget that's like cost of living is the number one two three thing that's raised with me people are under a lot of stress right now keep just keeping their mortgages and that's in an environment where the employment market's pretty strong so if if politicians can't respond to that uh in a way that solves people's real world problems there will be a backlash, and and I yeah you know, I do worry if politicians are the democratic system's not not working for people they'll take things in their own hands as you can see with ULES and what have you, 
So look, hopefully we do view those or respond to those incentives, respond to those desires. That's what our job is. Uh, I don't see much hope with the current Labor government. They're locked into this agenda. Uh, I mean, you know, how do you tell somebody who's struggling to pay their mortgage right now? And say, it's okay. We've got a new scheme uh, called a capacity investment scheme. We're going to give this complicated financial derivative to a foreign-based company uh, to invest in a whole lot of technology that hasn't worked to date. I mean, people will lose their minds at you, right? If that's your explanation to them at the shopping mall about how they're going to help you pay your mortgage, pay their mortgage next year. Uh, and hopefully, you know, the Liberal National Party that I'm part of will come up with better answers to that question ahead of the next election, uh, which I would hope would be dropping net zero, dropping this agenda um, and focusing on using our energy resources in the best way possible to make things cheaper for people. Yeah, you certainly uh, hit the nail on the head there with the the cost of living. Uh, and it's interesting you said that people talk to you about it a lot. Do you think... Um, do you think David Littleproud gets similar conversations? Oh, everybody is. Every every politician is, and and that includes uh, the Labor Party. Uh, uh, but you know that they, they, you know they they will probably continue down this mantra that renewable energy is the cheapest form of power. They're sort of locked into that. Um, I I think that yeah you know, that slogan uh, is fast running up to fast hitting the brick wall called reality. Uh, because we've been told this for years now, uh, and this this extends. The Labor Party are getting away with a little bit because the common perception is that the former Liberal National Party didn't do anything on renewable energy and was slow and obstructionist to it. That's nothing could be further from the truth. And uh, we've actually installed solar and wind at a rate four times higher than North America or Europe uh, in the last few years, including the last couple of years of the Liberal mm-hmm. National Party government. And so the more we install of this, and people can see it, it's going up everywhere. <laughs> Solar panels are going everywhere. These massive wind turbines now tall, as tall as the Eiffel Tower are going up. People can see it, and then they can see that, hang on, my power bill's going up. So that 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 yeah, that 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 reality check will will have an impact politically in my view. Just as same thing in COVID, there was a lot of scare and fear about COVID. But as soon as your mum got it and your granddad got it and they survived, it started to all go away because people saw the reality. And I think people can see the reality of renewable energy increasingly over the next few years. Nuclear power is uh, is constantly being talked about these days. And I, I think that um, is an indication of there's certainly some level of support. We've even seen the ABC hold, um, what do you call it, polls on their, on their yeah, viewing platform. Yeah, yeah. And they've come back with something like 60% or more in favor of it and very few against um, is the resistance to nuclear slipping away? And uh, I suppose the flip side question is that, are there many people in in your side of politics who are definitely opposed to nuclear power? Both very good questions. I, I don't think the opposition to nuclear power is slipping away. I think it's gone. I think it's already gone. Uh, as you say, the polls are consistently now showing a majority in favour. Indeed, recent polls I've seen is even a plurality of Labor voters are in favour. Uh, so not a not a majority yet. There's still a lot that are sort of on the fence, but more are supportive of nuclear energy that vote Labor than against. So that to me shows it's kind of done here, and the momentum's clearly in nuclear power's favour. Uh, then, in terms of my own side, no, I don't really know anyone on my side of politics that's significantly against it. Not federally, at the state level, there's still a lot of nervousness at different times, but there's not really anybody that's openly saying they don't support it. It's there's some that will express concern that it might not be politically successful at the ballot box. 
But, uh, you know, I, I think a combination of things is going in nuclear's favour here. As I said earlier, the the, the, the lived reality of renewables, uh, the the opposition that's building in rural areas to large renewable projects. One thing that's mm. not commented enough is the, how bad renewable energy is for the environment. It's absolutely mm. terrible. I was just at a farmer's place the other day and he can see the Stanwell coal-fired power station from his deck here in central Queensland. Lives, you know, it's maybe six kilometres from his deck. <laughs> And, um, you know, it it sits on a land area that's, including the coal mines, it, it sits on an area that is 10 times smaller than a wind turbine, wind farm. I don't like calling them farms. They're not farms. They're wind factories. Wind factory close to his property. He'll see the, the wind turbines from his deck. Uh, that will take up 10 times the land and mm -hmm. produce 10 times less power than yep. the coal-fired power station. So, in effect, the coal-fired power station is sitting on or using our environment at a rate a hundred times less than the than the than the wind factory, ten times ten. Uh, and so, but the greenies, well, I know the local greenies are against the wind farms. The local ones here that actually care about the koalas and sugar gliders, and good luck to them. I, I don't want to harm those little critters. Um, they're actually opposing. They're fighting with me against this. So, as people see that, they're thinking, well, and that's why you see around the world the greens parties all around the world are looking at nuclear again because. Mm -hmm. It's even less environmentally intensive than coal. It takes up less land. Uh, there's not the same size of mining associated with uranium mining. Uh, it's incredibly dense power. And, of course, it has lower, almost zero emissions. So uh, what, what's against it? And I think more and more people are saying that's just common sense. Um, so we'll break this wall down. I, I do. I mean, we might get onto it. I, I am still... I want to be realistic about nuclear power too and what it can do for the net zero agenda. Too many on our side are lazy about thinking that one net zero is just about electricity. It's not. It's only a third of emissions are electricity and nuclear doesn't solve a lot of the other two thirds. Mm. Uh, and, and it's still in Western countries, nuclear power has been quite expensive to build. Uh, uh, and, and I can't see us maintaining heavy industry like aluminium and steel based on nuclear power. So we'd still have to make choices here. Do you want to keep those industries in this country or do you want to just import all these finished goods from China who are going to produce them from coal-fired power that's often exported from Australia? That's <laughs> an uncomfortable reality for some people, which is why I think they don't like to talk about it. Another uncomfortable reality that I like to uh, throw in people's faces, I guess, as kindly as possible is that if you have a coal-fired power station with its own captive mine, that it's not exposed to export um, yeah. coal prices at, at say Newcastle port, for example, then, uh, it's not, it's not charged any of those prices. So the fuel cost for say Coke and Creek power station is very, very low. Exactly right. And you, you, you see on all those gen cost reports, they try and use export benchmark prices. It's ridiculous. Uh, obviously if we were to build a new coal fired power station, you'd sign a contract with a coal mine or own a coal mine. Uh, and you'd be able to sign a long-term contract on the basis of a of cost plus a margin, and you know, and still in Australia, mining black coal is roughly two dollars a gigajoule. Um, brown coal is obviously like fifty cents or so, and and you got gas prices at at you know twelve to fifteen dollars a gigajoule, and we're told that's going to replace coal at six to eight times higher in cost, uh, and then hydrogen's up at mm. fifty right now, so. You know, the, the, this is the, that hardcore math of of energy is not off is not enough put into the discussion here uh, about our choices. And there's going to be trade offs. So, so even if you choose nuclear, and you and we say no to coal fired power stations, well, I don't know of an aluminium smelter in the world that runs off nuclear energy. They're either run off hydro or coal, 
and um, aluminium is a massive industry in this country, employs thousands and thousands of people. Uh, are we going to kiss that goodbye? They're, life is about trade-offs. Life is about choices. And the thing that frustrates me the most about politics in a, what is now a very prosperous country that hasn't faced hardship for a while is we don't have the guts and courage to face up to those hard choices that every person's life presents them. It's a, it's a, it's a grim picture we're painting here. Hopefully we'll get to something a little bit more positive shortly. <laughs> um, you mentioned the CSIRO and the Gen Cost reports, which, which takes me into the, the energy bureaucracies. We've got the, um, CSIRO, we've got the Australian Energy Regulator, the Australian Energy Market Commission, the Australian Energy Market Operator. We've mentioned the uh, Energy Security, although there was an Energy Security Board, which is the, the ministers and a few others. Um, you might differ from my opinion on this, but I think the the evidence shows that the leadership of these bureaucracies are currently ha- are showing little interest in the evidence that wind and solar costs a lot more than a coal grid. Um, they prefer to rely on their own predetermined outcomes and that's a that's a criticism i have of the amos integrated system plan and of course aiden morrison's doing a, a fantastic bit of digging into the details mm-hmm. of this so good on him and and uh, uh wish him on his merry way and uh hopefully he gets some more gold nuggets out of those but i also believe and i've talked to a lot of people and there's there's obviously people within the bureaucracies who think this is all wrong and can't and can't talk about it mm-hmm. um Rather than talking about the individuals, I want to look at the role of the organization. So, um, and the way I want to phrase a question, is it the role of these organizations to advise and challenge politicians on policy, or are they merely a vehicle for implementation? Uh, It's mainly the latter, and that's just a practical um, conclusion. Uh, I suppose it's more of a, a positive rather than a normative observation of mine. That these sort of bureaucracies uh, are self-interested as you and I, and they're ultimately going to uh, move towards viewpoints which guarantee their eternal existence uh, and the jobs and 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 benefits that come with that for the individuals involved. And that's not to say, as you say, there's not some more principled people within these organisations, and sometimes you might get a rogue agency that steps out of line. But by by and all, the overall direction of these types of agencies is to uh is to calibrate their advice uh to suit their particular masters of the day and there's no body that is more like that than csiro in my experience so to try and take it out of the energy space to show that i'm not just well, i'm not just totally biased or influenced by this issue um the csiro before we came to government in 2013 was constantly writing reports how you couldn't build dams in this country that they you know well, it wasn't really a possibility of doing that anymore. We came to government with agenda to build dams. We wanted to do it. Surprise, surprise, the same people in the CSIRO started writing reports saying you could build dams or lots of opportunities to do it because, you know, they wanted to do work for us. <laughs> and and this is a pretty well-known fact in Canberra that the CSIRO have become, unfortunately, hired guns and they'll do what they have to do uh, to suit the government of the day uh, to uh, to to support an agenda that, that any government's come become come to be elected by and this government of course is pushing renewable energy very hard and so they're pushing down that particular road that's not surprising so i just think we've got to make sure we unfortunately there is still this sort of notion that these bodies are independent and look at issues um in some kind of omni benevolent fashion uh they know they're just human beings like you and i and have the same flaws and problems of us so they're not some solution and you can just tell 
You mentioned all the bodies. You went through the laundry list there of bodies, and there are more bodies in the energy policy space in this country than there are in a graveyard, right? And that's, to me, a sign of the failure of, of all of these bodies over time because they've had to be replaced and new ones created to try and deal with the deficiencies of the one that was already in there that was meant to do the job in the first place. Uh, so, look, I, 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 I don't put a lot of hope in these agencies solving the energy crises of our, the multiple crises that are afflicting our nation. I ultimately think it'll be driven by the people who will will react to this and that will then consequently cause a change of tune from those agencies. Should states be self-sufficient on their electricity systems? Energy, and that kind of brings me into another question, is uh, do we even need a federal energy minister? Um, I understand there's a role for a federal um, sort of coordinating maybe, or there's a um, sort of ec- on the export side, but, but for domestic electricity, uh, it's a state issue. Why, why does the feds need to get involved? I think I have to be involved now for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, look, ideally we should have a functioning national electricity market. There's no reason why uh, we shouldn't import and export energy from different states. Uh, it actually worked very well for its first sort of half of its existence. The national electricity market is created out of the national competition policy reforms. I was involved in a little bit of that when I worked at the Productivity Commission. Uh, and we actually, people forget now, but we, through those reforms, we helped reduce electricity prices in Australia by about 20%, even more for businesses. There used to be big cross-subsidies that were removed. And it was a great success story. It was, in fact, the biggest benefit when we, at the Productivity Commission, looked at the National Competition Policy Agenda. It was the biggest benefit of all the reforms was in the energy space, electricity space. Anyway, since 2007, we put on layer and layer of, of green schemes and it's just completely destroyed the market now i still think we need national leadership here to unwind and unpick all of this and hopefully recreate a better functioning market uh, across the states and territories in eastern australia where it makes sense to connect us up uh secondly i think um uh this is a problem now a crisis for a country that people are going to demand a federal response to so you could sit back and say no it's a matter for the states and i don't need to be involved as prime minister uh, well, good luck with that. Uh, you'll, you won't be Prime Minister for uh, post the next election if you don't have an answer for the Australian people about how you're going to solve their energy bills. There's got to be a federal response. We're winding up. So a couple of little uh, more policy side. Uh, are the Libs and Nats brave enough to differentiate from Labor on the net zero policies? Well, look, we'll see. We'll see. I'll certainly be fighting for us to do that. Uh, we were brave enough to say no to the voice. And uh, a lot of people, uh, we, we were called bigots and racists and every name of the sun for doing that. And and we did that when, when the Nationals Party decided to oppose the voice. We, you know, we were a clear minority. There was only about a third, 30 to 35 percent of Australians who were saying they'd vote no. And within a year, uh, we'd turn that around to being the opposite. And, you know, 60 percent of people voted no. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think leadership matters, courage is contagious, and I'll certainly be pushing that we should differentiate ourselves from the Labor Party here, have a clear alternative viewpoint. I think one thing that this is, and I know we're running out of time, but a technical matter I think deserves to be explored more is that uh, putting aside just net zero by 2050, there's also the 2030 targets before that, and the Labor Party have increased our targets under the Paris Agreement from a 26 to 28% that we agreed to when we signed Paris to 43% now by 2030. Um, the way the Paris Agreement is booby-trapped, we can't, if we came to government, we can't reduce the target. 
you can't go back from 43%. The only thing you can do is leave the Paris Agreement. So you know, we're put in this bind is do we accept the Labor Party's ridiculous target that's very hard to achieve within a few years, a couple of election cycles by the time of the next election, or do we revert back to what, well, we're not revert back, we keep our current policy of 26 to 20%. If we keep our current policy, well, we've got to get out of the Paris Agreement. And if we're out of the Paris Agreement, why do we need to do net zero? So that's a question I don't think many people have really cottoned on to yet uh, about how we deal with that if we came to government. The third option is we just ignore it like most other countries, but we tend not to do that here in Australia. <laughs> I'm I'm a, I'm a strong critic of the Paris Agreement and I couldn't, I, I could believe it, but I was ex- exasperated is, is the, the best adjective when I think it was Albanese and Bowen's first, first agenda item on getting elected was to sign that uh, 43%. Yeah, and the reason they did that is for this, to try and lock lock us in. But this goes to a question of civil unrest too that you're saying. If these international organisations keep trying to... So say we got elected with a democratic mandate to reduce the 2030 target, and then the Paris bureaucracy says, oh, no, no, you can't do that. Well, yep. that will that will create the conditions of civil unrest because suddenly you're undermining democracy. So hopefully we don't get to that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay, um, last couple of questions. Chris Bowen is putting EV charges at Parliament House. Are they free for politicians and should they be free for all taxpayers? I actually have no idea. I've never used EV charges at Parliament House and I probably never will. I don't have a car there anyway. But uh, yeah, I mean, he says he's put them there. I suppose there are a few politicians that drive. The ones from Sydney and that. I'm too far Mm. away. I'm not going to drive. But uh, most of us come in on a, you know, pretty uh, emissions hungry jet. (laughs) Uh, Most of us up at the front end of the plane too, which is a Emission, you know, tar- emissions uh, uh, contribution greater than if you're down the back of the plane. So, look, uh, I don't think it's going to matter too much. Uh, I don't think it should be free for Australians. I don't think it should be free for politicians. Uh, you already get a free ride in an electric car because you don't pay the fuel excise. So, mm. uh, there's enough subsidies as there is. And my last question what would you say to a swing voter if they asked you about energy security and related policy? How would you, how would you approach that conversation? We should use all our energy resources to benefit Australians, uh, to keep energy prices as low as possible, to help you with your budget, uh, to support uh, the strong uh, manufacturing heritage we have as a nation and the very high-paying jobs that supports. Uh, And we should have an energy policy that minimises its footprint on the natural environment. Uh, And so to do all those things, we just should not be ruling out uh, specific types of power, whether it's coal, whether it's nuclear or whether it's renewables, I don't want to rule out renewables either. There's, there's certainly spots that it can um, exist in a, in a functioning electricity market. So we should just do everything. Uh, and if we have an abundance of energy, like any market, if we have an abundance of energy, we'll get cheaper energy prices. So I'd be aiming for energy abundance. That's what our goal should be. Uh, and every society in the world that's been able to achieve an abundant source of energy has been more prosperous, has been better for the environment because they've got more resources to protect uh, uh, things like the natural environment and had lower levels of pollution. The final thing I'd say, which not so much the swing voter, but we haven't touched on is, yeah, the biggest environmental issue now in our region is air pollution. Uh, you know, it's, uh, something like six to 7 million people a year die from indoor and outdoor air pollution. Uh, almost all of that occurs in our region, in the Southeast Asian region or North Asian region. And that is because people are using inferior fuels, uh, you know, poorer people using inferior fuels mm-hmm. in household and small business applications. It's not our coal. A lot of people think it's our coal. No, our coal gets used in modern coal-fired power stations, which get rid of all that rubbish before Mm -hmm. it goes in the atmosphere. And so the other thing we should aim for energy abundance is not just for our own country, but for the region. The export of our coal, our gas, our uranium, 
is a, a very, very important contribution to solving the biggest environmental problem in the world and saving millions of lives, millions of lives. Um, and it really frustrates me that the latest uh, International Energy Agency report on the World Energy Outlook spends uh, a cursory moment speaking about the six or seven million people who die from air pollution. And then the rest of the report focused on carbon emissions. It is totally perverse uh, and anti-human uh, to brush aside those millions of people who suffer from inferior energy outcomes when we have the solution here in this country, including the use of our very, very clean fossil fuels. Well said. Thank you, Matt Canavan. Uh, and thank you for joining me today on the Baseload Podcast. Thanks, Ben. Keep up the great work. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a week. In the meantime, if you like the podcast, hit the like button, subscribe, tell your friends.